Welcome to Beacons of Light, a series dedicated to showcasing the extraordinary faculty members of Walden University. On the screen in front of you, you'll see the media player and a Q&A window. You can also access the attendee chat from the toolbar at the bottom of the screen. To submit questions for our guest, please use the Q&A window. To access closed captions for this event, please select the CC or closed captions button in the lower right corner of the media player window. And now, please welcome our host, Chief Academic Officer, Dr. Sue Subak. Good evening, everyone. Uh, good morning for some of you, perhaps, and good afternoon for others. Uh, I can't believe this is our fourth episode of Beacons of Light. It seems like yesterday I was uh, kind of nervous to interview our first guest, and here we are tonight uh, with, with our fourth and so we've had um, a lot of really great multidisciplinary conversations and really digging into the research of some of our great faculty. We've talked with uh, one of our professionals from the social work area. Last episode, we had uh, one of our business uh, faculty members with us who's launching a, a new concept into the world. And uh, we had an exciting conversation with him. And interestingly, our very first episode featured a nurse uh, during Nurses Month. And at the time, everyone was really, really hopeful that we were on the downside of the pandemic and we were gonna, uh, you know, the, the vaccine was just really getting out there for widespread adoption. And uh, we thought by the time we got here to August, we'd be on a, on a different trajectory than we are today. And so, Suri, uh, you know, in another uh, circumstance, we might have been having a conversation tonight in reflecting on the pandemic. And instead, uh, we're gonna do some reflecting, but we're still right in the midst of it. And so this is a very timely conversation uh, with you. One thing that we have uh, dedicated ourselves to in this series is not spending 10 minutes on bios to tell everybody who I am and tell everybody the long, um, sometimes boring resume that goes with an introduction. So. What I'd like to really do is just uh, give you the opportunity to share a little bit of your research and what's top of mind for you right now these days um, in the midst of this public health crisis that we're, that we're facing. Thank you for um, providing me this opportunity, Sue, for um, providing um, some uh, opportunities for sharing some of my research um, and that is out there um, with COVID. But more importantly, um, from that research, um, some of the insights uh, that, that I have gained along the way. Um, and, and that journey, um, if I think back, um, started from um, my interest first in infectious diseases um, when I first uh, went to um, India. And, you know, railway stations are uh, very common um, in, in India. And so um, I came across um, an individual, a homeless individual um, who had um, tuberculosis. And, you know, one of the critical questions that came to my mind is, you know, why is it that this individual is so severely sick and there's no help for this person. Um, and that is where my inquisitive mind, but also my empathy, you know, um, came in and I wanted to do something to make a difference. Hmm. And so, you know, I decided that at that point, I um, decided that 
being a physician was going to be, you know, my path. Um, but as I evolved and um, as I, as my journey progressed through the years, um, through spending time at the Centers for Disease Control and I'm looking at um, population level measures, um, my interest shifted um, more towards uh, public health. And now um, a lot of my research um, is geared towards understanding what are some of the factors, especially social factors, um, mm. that are um, making for uh, disparities in vaccine uptake. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fundamental question is, you know, why is, is there disparities, um, in, in that uptake? And, um, I have several, um, t- types of research that I, I will be sharing and presenting, um, that I have done in this area. Yeah. So Sri, I think, um, in one of our conversations, we talked a little bit about my background and, uh, working in the Coast Guard and, you know, um, in uh, thinking about emergency preparedness and emergency management, you know, similar issues um, of disparity in preparedness, disparity in how, um, you know, social factors weigh into response. So could you talk a little bit about social factors and the ways in which they come into play as, um, you know, we look at, you know, first we were looking at disparate impacts of COVID, um, based on various societal factors. And now we're seeing, um, you know, with uptick on vaccinations and other, um, you know, and other um, advice that's, that's being given or opportunities being made for, um, you know, for treatment. Um, what, what, what do you think are the social factors behind that based on your research? Sure, sure. I'll, uh, I, I can get into that um, a little bit. Um, but before, um, b- before talking about that, I, I wanted to, um, you know, also talk about uh, emergency preparedness and how important it, it is, you know, this pandemic, if it has taught us nothing else. One thing that, that we have really learned is that we need to be prepared, you know, for, for um, the next potential pandemic. Because um, as, as, as um, I have um, identified in um, myself and other researchers in our social change grant that um, we are working on, that this is, um, in fact, a pandemic era. Um, every two to three years, we're seeing patterns of, um, say, if we if we go back to if you go back ten years ago, um, with with the pandemic that's been there, we're seeing patterns, um, and so emergency preparedness um, is at the centerpiece of this, um, and I think um, requires a lot more focus. Um, but going back to the uh, point at hand um, that you raised, um, very importantly, um, talking about social factors. Um, when I first, you know, um, start uh, talking about this, and um, I've had, uh, you know, numerous conversations about this with with my colleagues as well. Um, uh, you know, Dr. Angela Pren, um, we, we have been, you know, and um, in conversations and social factors. One of the biggest things um, that is important is to have a good model, and the tree is a really model is a really practical model to um, understand social factors. Three things in a tree, right? Branches, the trunk, and and then the roots. So if we think about the branches, we're thinking about the outcomes that we're thinking about. So um, if we're thinking about um, 
you know, mortality outcomes um, increase. So, so it, it was seen through research that um, in minority communities, um, COVID was um, more causing more death, more mortality mm-hmm. um, than, than in, in the majority population. So, so th- these were th- patterns that we're seeing. So th- the branches are these outcomes. So the trunk um, would be talking about um, maybe um, engaging in risk behaviors, um, some sort of individual behavior. But then the root cause, that is where we want to think about social determinants, because those are these factors which people really can't see. They're, they're hidden um, on, on their, for instance, implicit bias. This is something that is not um, really seen microaggressions you might think of. These are not something that you will immediately be able to identify, but they're playing a role in influencing the outcomes. So now applying this to COVID, as I said, you know, um, to some of these social disparities and um, disparate access. So lack of access to um, healthcare. Um, and I can explain that further uh, in, in, in the context of geospatial research as well. But um, some of these disparities, um, you know, you, you can kind of see um, there. And, and I, I, you know, these disparities are not only present from a research angle. Um, from my time in Baltimore uh, seeing patients, um, I've witnessed firsthand um, some of these disparities, um, w- which I can share as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you said something interesting there, Sri, which um, I think um, might surprise some people. You said we've, we're in an era of pandemics and there have been patterns. And I think if you um, stood in the middle of, um, you know, the average city in the United States and, and said that, people would look at you like, what are you talking about? Like, um, so in, in many ways, it's been sort of um, behind the scenes for most people. So how would you respond to that, you know, that surprise? Um, <laughs> give us a sense of, of what these last decade or decades have, have shown. Um, and that's a very good question um, because w- we want to think about and identify eras depending on usually positive things. You know, if if we think um, mm-hmm. in in the past, um, well, we've had the Gilded Age and and certain eras, and um, of course, um, also with uh, feminism, there's waves of feminism. So there's eras, and and so what what the premise is behind this argument is that this era is so significant, and and this pandemic has changed our way of life so significantly. Um, And I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, all the changes are negative, but they are changes Mm -hmm. um, that to the point that we have to um, adapt um, to these changes. So um, to the point that we have to be prepared that um, some of these practices that that we are, um, you know, getting used to, um, for instance, masking, um, these are practices that in uh, in in other countries have been commonplace for years because this has been a known fact uh, in in other countries that that um 
a lot of these habitats are getting destroyed. Um, a lot of these places um, due to, you know, even global warming, um, a, a lot of vector-borne diseases are increasing, which increases the uh, amount of viruses um, that can transfer um, from animal, you know, over to human. Um, and, and so because we're, there's so much um, habitat loss, um, a lot more um, development is encroaching on natural habitats, um, and and so so the environment as 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 these things evolve, um, these patterns uh, like um, having more pandemics um, will will become the pattern. Uh, will will become something um, mm. of of a normality, you know, um, and and so this this is not to cause alarm by by any means. Um, on the contrary, um, this is the, the person that is most prepared will be the person that, you know, is able to adapt and, and succeed, you know? Um, so yeah. this is part of being an informed citizen. Yeah. Well, you know, Sari, I traveled to China in the fall of 2018 and observed what you're saying. And um, foolish me um, for not um, adopting the local practice is what I say in hindsight. And lucky me um, that I, um, you know, I didn't have to pay for that um, because um, clearly, as you say, they definitely had a different perspective and, um, you know, a different experience perhaps than I had had and, and, and maybe just more knowledge. So I've learned something tonight and um, thank you for that. So I'm, I'm sure there will be more, but that's one that I can, um, I can really take to heart. Um, so speak to this um, emergency preparedness a, a little bit. You, you, you did there about, you know, individual preparedness, you know, to our public health um, professionals and growing professionals in our audience, what kinds of things would you would you say to them are an important part of, um, you know, the things that they can do to help, you know, their communities or their organizations where they work um, think about this emergency preparedness from a public health perspective? Yes, yeah, so certainly. Um, a very good question. So, um, you know, emergency preparedness um, can um, look like uh, certain things from uh, certain different uh, from different angles, and I'll explain to you what I mean by that. So, uh, for instance, one pers one uh, context is, of course, for instance, psychological first aid. Um, these things are important, um, especially when there's an emer emergency and uh, people don't have the emotional skills um, necessarily, you know, um, to cope with something like that. So preparing um, for that, um, that's one way. And so so that's more of a mental health approach um, and mental public health um, can investigate as to how better um, to prepare um, populations and, and, and to kind of, um, minimize the shock um, that, that people feel. And, and that part of it, actually, um, I have been involved in, in research with my colleagues um, in the counseling department and um, actually my some other uh, students in both of the departments. What we're looking at actually is um, trying to look at the type of anxiety um, and uh, connections mm -hmm between anxiety and sleep disturbances and 
um, what types of patterns exist so that because sleep disturbances in sleep are patterns that persist after even the pandemic is over. Um, and they're, they're long-term consequences. So um, understanding those um, consequences from a, from a disease mental health um, or public health perspective um, is, is, one, is only one way actually um, of the, that you know, um, disaster preparedness could be addressed. Um, but from all, also from um, an environmental health perspective, um, having access to um, you know food, water, and shelter, ensuring that um, these exist, um, is actually a part of the role of a registered um, environmental health specialist. Um, so, um, and and that's one of uh, actually my credentials um, that I have through the National Environmental Health Association. Um, so, so and so a major portion um, of this is ensuring that the incident command center, um, and and so whoever, so there there is a whole protocol that's followed. Um, the first person um, to report to the center, it's not actually anybody that's designated, um, is the person that takes charge of um, kind of de delegating. Um, and so mm -hmm. there, there's there's very strict guidelines and things. And um, as, as part of public health training, people that have um, also a background in a very strong basic sciences um, and math can, can actually apply um, for, for this credential. Um, so um, definitely there's a lot of room and a lot of opportunity, um, I, I think, at, for um, emergency preparedness. And that is um, a job prospect um, that is only growing um, mm. at, 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 at an increasing rate. Yeah, um, really interesting. And, you know, um, we had a question from um, the audience, actually, Sri, which I think is really relevant here. So um, speaking about your collaborative work, um, with uh, folks from the counseling team, et cetera. One of our audience members has asked, uh, uh, first they say, I am planning to undergo my postdoctoral degree at Walden University. How can research collaboration with Walden University and the faculty help? That's a very, very good question. Um, and and um, I would like to start off um, by saying that I'm being, by, that by thinking of postdoctoral work, um, it's really important uh, to, to be um, engaged in this because um, past, you know, your dissertation, it's, it's, it's a lot of times important to hone in on specific skills um, that you might not have um, gained in, in your regular doctoral training. Um, but uh, to the point that you bring up about, you know, the need for collaboration, um, it's uh, very important um, because, the, you know, the insights that um, can be gained from even the dialogue and the conversation. Um, you know, when the final paper is actually published and written um, and the words that are contained within that paper is only probably, you know, half the words of all of the ideas that came from the, the brainstorming sessions and, and the back and forth and just pruning and, and, and everything um, that takes place in the um, paper writing, research paper writing process. Um, so that active collaboration and engagement by all uh, members is, is what makes um, a, a product, a finished product, um, you know, that much better. Um, and, you know, it's it's important. It's not just important to just have anybody, you know, collaborating. It's important to give some thought into um, assembling, you know, teams. How how to assemble these uh, 
academic academic teams. Um, you know, when I was um, engaged in research in social isolation and um, loneliness, um, I, I felt you know it was important um, to have um, an individual that's trained in psychology, you know, in counseling, mm -hmm. um, and and also. Uh, actually, one of my uh, former students who was uh, well trained in infectious diseases. So we were looking at loneliness as it relates to COVID nineteen um, and the mm -hmm. social distancing measures, um, and 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 uh, looking at how the search frequencies changed um, within Google um, before and after the social distancing measures, and there were significant changes in that. Um, that was one of many uh, parts of that research project, but that's just an example. Uh, mm -hmm. That goes to show really, really how important and critical it is um, to have a multidisciplinary team approach. Yeah, and I think what I hear you saying there, Sri, is that you have to do your research so that you can do your collaborative research, <laughs> both about, you know, what it is that you're trying to get to and then who can help you to get there. Yes, Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like the story of um, as, of life in most occupations these days. It's really hard to imagine the sort of siloed approaches that um, may have marked the past where, um, you know, I think now you've, you've used words social determinants of health, which, um, you know, cut across so many different disciplines um, when, when, you know, we're having this conversation about our business and management programs and what role does um, ethical business, do ethical business practices play in, you know, creating a healthy society? And um, I think it's really just um, a mark of the times, as you say, it's a, an era of um, pandemics and, and we have to prepare for, you know, um, you know, the, the situation we have at hand. But I think in the workplace altogether, we have um, just so much more knowledge about the way in which one system impacts another and one discipline's findings can influence what you learn and know in another discipline. And um, I'm really hopeful that we can elevate um, that kind of research to, um, to whole different levels here at Walden, because I, I think that's how the, you know, the, the world's gonna be changed in the future, um, not by the individual scientist in the lab anymore. <laughs> So thank you for that collaboration across our groups. Uh, it sounds like um, we should all be waiting to see what you find. Um, and, and I'll be looking. So that's good. <laughs> I want to know. Um, so um, a question that um, also came from from our audience. Um, as you look at, um, you know, sort of the uh, you know, what we hear out there today, it's uh, prevention-based discussions. You know, we talk about vaccinations and masking. Um, why would you say that the conversations have focused around that particular part of uh, response um, rather than a more holistic approach to overall health in response to, the, to this pandemic and maybe others? Thanks for that question. Yeah, um, that's a, that's a good question, Sue. Um, and you know, it's it's important to um, understand the importance of prevention. Um, prevention is something that you know at at, at the end is ideal um, and preferable because it, it you know it saves money um, eventually because, you know, once a person has the disease, then it, it takes a lot more healthcare cost um, to be, to, to be able to treat, 
what, what, what the person has um, rather than preventing. So um, I, I, at a fundamental level, um, our, our approach in public health um, is to put as many resources as we can in um, preventative measures. Um, and, you know, this, this sort of um, emphasis on prevention, I think, is not just unique to public health, um, but in, in a lot of other disciplines as well, um, since we, we're talking, you know, cross-disciplinary. Um, even thinking about, you know, the environment, um, uh, environmental engineering, where a lot of, um, you know, environmental health um, concepts come from uh, is is also you know when you're when you're disposing hazardous waste you don't want the contamination to take place and then afterwards think about what you can do to clean up the spill no <laughs> you want to make sure that the hazardous waste never gets um, out of the drums you know to to create the spill in the first place um, and and so at at a fundamental level, that is the reason why we invest so many resources into prevention. But um, if if we think about this more specifically, um, and think about you know the chains of transmission, um, and, and and this was a phrase that that was coined um, and used very specifically for COVID. Um, and when we were thinking about conceptualizing and and all of the contact tracing um, was taking place. Um, the chains of transmission and prevention of those um, through masking and social distancing was important um, it, because, you know, one person get, infects uh, more, infects more. So it, it keeps, multi, you know, the number of people keep multiplying. And so th that is why, you know, it was more important there. Um, now, you know, we're talking about overall well-being and overall health, right? Um, and um, if we think about um, natural, um, you know, um, fish oils, for instance, um, omega-3 fatty acids um, and um, a, a lot of the, um, you know, um, lipid-lowering characteristics, things like that. Um, even through medical science, you know, we some of these therapies um have its you know have its value these therapies do have its value however when we're thinking you know about overall health and covid these should be something that you're you know kind of maintaining as overall um maintenance of health rather than thinking of them as um prevention you know to the point that it's prevention or treatment um, mm -hmm. of the virus um you know it's so the, the problem is so hard to conceptualize this virus you know how is it that something that you can not even see through a microscope it you cannot visualize this through a regular microscope you have to go into a special room and look at an electron microscope to see an actual virus um when, when i first saw a virus in an electron microscope um, at the cdc um, to, to go walk into this room was, was shocked to me. So, you know, it, the, it, it's so, so difficult. We, we think that maybe if we maintain overall health, then that, that should be enough to, you know, get rid of something that we can't even see. But the reality is this virus goes into your DNA and you know go, goes and and hijacks the system and then creates and multiplies copies of it so yeah. this is why it's so difficult 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And and I think that, you know, um, for me, again, going back to my emergency management uh, perspectives, it, risk management, you know, and um, risk reduction go together. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of folks are looking for sort of the magic answer. If everybody just does this one thing, then, um, but there, there really isn't. It's about here are your chances and you can decrease your chances by wearing a mask and you can decrease them further by social distancing and you can decrease them further, so on and so on. Um, and, and, and absent, you know, um, complete social and um, physical isolation, um, even of the air, you, you really just um, can't eliminate the chances entirely. And, and so I do think that that has um, made the, the conceptualization of it all all the more difficult is that, you know, even people who seemingly have done all the right things end up getting it. <laughs> um, but that's because even though it was a 1% chance, it's still not zero because one is not zero. <laughs> and, um, and so that has really, I think, got into the consciousness of, of people, um, you know, and that um, all of those areas that you say. So I do have to ask you a little silly question now, Sri. So you, you go into the magic room and you look in the electron microscope at a virus. What does it look like? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, um, you, you think, uh, honestly, you know, um, when you're thinking about uh, a microorganism, you, you think, you know, it's a regular cell. Um, it's, it's a, it, it has a nucleus, you know. But to see... Uh, a uh, hexagon shaped sort of capsid and you know with all these legs it, it's 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 kind of you know it, it's really shocking you know it's it, it's kind of um magnificent but terrifying at the same time that's the best way to put it yeah okay well that's going to be the phrase for the night magnificent but terrifying at the same time <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing that experience. We could feel it as you were saying that. Um, so I, I want to ask some other questions here from the audience. Um, you talked about geospatial, um, uh, you know, uh, concepts earlier. And so one of our audience questions um, goes to that topic. Given the geospatial clustering of disease and the nature of open and closed networks, how would you suggest that global and local actors manage and get ready for the future? That's a uh, really good question. And um, what I'll do um, in answering this question, I, I want to give an example of how geospatial um, it, it kind of studies work um, as I'm as I'm sharing this story. So, um, you know, in, in my experiences um, in, in Baltimore, um, you you see, um, you know, neighborhoods and you see um, the location of um, you know, supermarkets and, and grocery stores, um, or or lack thereof, um, in in different neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So it, it, you, as you're as you're driving, you kind of see these patterns. So, um, in my time at Hopkins, um, wh what um, some of the research that I did with um, you know geospatial was understanding um, the distribution of supermarkets with fresh foods. Um, because, you know, after all, food deserts are really, really, um, you know, a major problem in, in um, urban areas. Um, so th th these are 
patterns through geospatial analysis, um, you know, that I was tracking. Um, so through um, that gives you an example of how you can use clustering um, analysis to understand, you know, what are areas which have more of um, certain things. So, for instance, now um, let's use the same example, but replace um, food deserts with health clinics. So um, we were also tracking patterns of um, um, STI clinics, um, sexually transmitted infection, you know, clinics, and there weren't too many um, as of that as well. So similarly, now when we're thinking about um, COVID, um, patterns of pharmacies that carry the vaccine, um, and th looking at neighborhood patterns, um, and there are, if you look at these patterns, there, there's disparities um, in, in, in these um, vaccine areas. And so this creates disparities in access, um, health access. And so that would lead to, um, you know, certain areas having more vaccine uptake versus other areas um, having less uptake. Um, so, you know, in this example, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to show is how also you can use this geospatial um, data to to provide um, equity related um, conclusions um, and and a pattern understanding. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting application and analogy you make there, Sri. Um, so, um, you know, when you think about this sort of concept of open and closed networks, um, what what impact do you think that has on? both preparedness and um, how, you know, individual communities respond. Right. So, um, so yeah, that, that's a good question. And so, um, you know, having a way to, you know, have open communication and, and openness between uh, communities um, it, it is the way to the future. Mm -hmm. um, having um, insular sort of um, closed, uh, you know, n not sharing resources will, will not allow for us to um, address the pandemic. Um, so, you know, one scenario um, to illustrate this, for instance, you know, the, the global vaccination efforts, right? If, if we think about um, what part of um, most of the population is vaccinated, um, it's very little. Um, and in, in some places, the unfortunate reality is that um, there is a supply of vaccines, mm -hmm. but um, in some cases, they're not willing, you know, um, in, in, uh, in other countries as well. Um, mm -hmm. th there was also um, this scenario where um, a lot of the vaccinations were going to people uh, or countries that, that were paying um, and then the countries that were not were not um, getting vaccines. Um, so th there were all of these um, situations. Um, at the Serum Institute in India, I can uh, give you a, a kind of illustration, is the largest vaccine manufacturer in the world. And yet um, in uh, India, you know, the, the population, only one person of the population was, was vaccinated, you know, uh, even though all the vaccines and so many of the vaccines are being produced there. Mm. So, 
you you have all these contradictions, you know. Um, you you have some places you have a lot of supply, you know, not people taking it, and then other places you don't have the supply. Um, sure. So I, as you know, it it brings back to our point earlier that these issues are complex. And as researchers, you know, we we oftentimes think that we want to solve all the problems in the world. But the reality is, as researchers, we can only solve one small portion of this. And when you go to these conferences and, and you're talking <laughs> with fellow uh, researchers and and you see that, you know, you you worked on one component of it and they worked on that same problem from a different angle. And came up with another solution, and and that is the magic and the beauty of of this whole process. Yeah. So, um, Suri, I think you raise a really important point. Another angle on collaboration in talking about professional associations and conferences. And earlier, you mentioned the Environmental Health Association as well, with um, you know some um, some certifications that you can achieve. So. You know, we have uh, uh, many public health students in our audience tonight. So what kind of advice would you give them around professional associations, particularly if they're new to the to the field? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for that question, Sue. Um, we we have um, quite a few um, important uh, public health um, organizations that students can really get involved in. Um, the most important one that we have is the American Public Health Association. Um, I uh, personally am uh, very much involved um, in this organization. My colleagues, um, uh, all of them are actively involved. Um, and you can get involved um, as students as well. Um, and you, you in, in many ways, um, you can be, uh, you know, be an active member um, of any number of sections. Uh, I am an active member of the mental health section and um, I attend meetings and you're actually able to do a lot of neat things. Um, you're able to actually um, you know, work on um, certain policies potentially um, uh, certain calls for action. Um, so th this is kind of your opportunity to make a difference, um, even as being a student, you know, um, uh, it's never too early to start. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, you can attend through the American Public Health Association, usually in November, um, there's a major conference. Um, and of course, usually it's in um, different cities, uh, but due to the pandemic, um, it's being held virtually again this year. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, students also have an opportunity to present. Um, and so there's a, a couple of, um, uh, posters, um, that I have actually, um, uh, w one of my uh, former students, um, is presenting there on, um, another vector borne disease, um, which is, uh, dengue. Oh. Which, um, ironically, if you have uh, immunity to, to, to dengue, there was some immunity that was afforded to, with COVID. So, oh. you know, a lot of these vector-borne diseases and, uh, well, I mean, of course, it's not definitive that COVID is vector-borne, but um, they, they behave similar. Um, but anyway, you know, professional organizations um, are um, important places not only for involvement, but also to look for um, kind of the specific stance um, that your discipline holds on um, certain uh, topic areas. Um, so ref referring back to them, 
um, are is is important. And as a student, actually, the dues are uh, much less. So um, you get the benefits of professional membership um, with much less um, to pay. Um, so, so if those are not convincing points, then <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what else. It makes me want to yeah. join your professional association if they'd have me, Sri. It was very compelling. <laughs> so thanks. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I have a, a few more questions from the audience. And so I do want to ask um, some questions about um, health communications. And, you know, in the field of emergency management and, uh, you know, communications has really taken on a heightened and, and communications that are part of preparedness and a part of response. Um, so could, could you speak a little bit to that? And then specifically, um, the question that we have here is, you know, how, how do public health um, professionals safeguard against misinformation? And particularly when that misinformation might come from other medical professionals who post information contrary to what the CDC and public health officials are, are saying, which we have observed. Um, you know, uh, very good question, Sue. That is um, so important, um, misinformation and, um, you know, how, how actually to handle that. Um, so I'm, I'm going to take that question first and and then go back um so yeah it, it it's such an important topic um misinformation and in fact you know i'll i'll start off by saying this that um one of the major concerns um initially last year was that not only was this you know virus spreading rapidly but also misinformation was spreading just as rapidly so at one point um there was this term coined uh, known as the infodemic um and the the and if you if you uh, google this term it's still there and um the idea behind that is that the information was actually causing the, the, so much harm that that in itself was an issue um and um why you know why um part of the issue of course is that this is new science um, you know, it, it, viruses have been around for a long time, but the behaviors and the patterns of how the virus was spreading was not um, known completely, you know, to everyone in the scientific community. So at that point, if um, there was guidance that was, you know, coming from the, the medical establishment, what that seemed contradictory, then that may have been the reason. Um, because not all information was known. And so, th and th that is actually the nature of scientific discovery um, and innovation. But the difference was that this was something that was needed in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, from everything from knowing how the virus spreads to coming up with the vaccine, the race um, to, to do so was was just so critical so you know because you know, one of the reason major reasons that information um was was so confusing was was because this was the difference between life and death and it was affecting so many people um i mean look you know we have had 4.4 million close to 4.4 million deaths globally you know this is this is not a topic that that 
you know, it, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. Or th- this, this is a lot of people's lives, you know? And so w- when, when information makes a difference between life and death, th- this is when, if you're playing telephone, think about that, you know, how, do, how many, how often do messages not end up exactly the same that they started, right? Yep. So um, that that's that's one of them, one reason. But politicization of information was the other uh, other problem, other issue from the beginning. Um, you know, equating mask wearing to um, a, a certain political leaning um, or not mask wearing or or vaccinations or that dichotomization um, is is at the foundation of of misinformation um because now not only was there confusion about what is correct but there was also a a vested interest in wanting to think one way or another Mm -hmm. and then economics uh you know played a role and and so many different um aspects so so as researchers how do we how how do we differentiate fact from fiction and as epidemiologists and public health practitioners we are we pride ourselves in being able to discern that um and and one of the key foundational concepts in in our profession is um correlation does not always mean causation right so because two things are happening simultaneously um, doesn't mean one caused the other. Um, so we we are taught to discern um, levels of evidence, even like clinical trials are um, like randomized controlled trials. The conclusions that come out of that are superior to you know more observational studies. So we're constantly in our heads ranking levels of evidence. Um, when we read, come across a piece of information, this is what we're doing in our heads. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that, that, that's how you become, um, an informed, uh, not only consumer of information, but, but also a student, you know, and, and a learner, um, because as, as I always say, I consider myself a lifelong learner. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you, you touched on something that another one of our audience members asked about three, so um, the question, as is phrased from the audience, is how has I- ideological polarization within our society impacted how we plan public health responses, given that mask wearing and vaccination is now tethered to individuals' social identity? That is a, a really thoughtful question. Um, and um, I, I think it really brings us back to kind of um, full circle talking about, you know, um, social determinants and, um, identity is, you know, part of that, um, and, and how we think about that. So, um, you know, let's, let's try to think about, um, going back to, you know, how these, um, ideological divisions, um, develop, right? So, um, if we, if we think about, kind of a sociological perspective in groups versus out groups 
and how um, we categorize even even the way people look. So mask wearing versus non-mask wearing, right? So that creates a sort of in-group. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like being like identifying with the team, like wearing a cap um, mm-hmm. that gives the other person a sense of who you are. Um, so it's, it's like, you know, if, if you believe in a certain ideology and, but, um, instead you are doing something contradictory to that ideology, then that actually places you in the out group. It, you no longer belong, um, to part of that norm, part of that social norm. So who, who, who wants to, you know, not feel like they belong? Who, who wants to feel castigated or like an outcast? No one, right? Mm-hmm. So, so part of human nature becomes that, you know, they try to solidify these identities and create these identities. Um, and, but unfortunately, these identities are becoming more and more polarized because it's a vicious cycle. So, so then society becomes more more polarized, which in, creates more individuals um, that that are part of the in group, and and it just so it's once there's this positive feedback, we we have these positive feedback loops in medicine and um, you know biology all the time, and and unfortunately these vicious cycles are positive feedback loops. You know they they keep. Um, moving in polarized directions. Um, but, you know, our job as, as researchers, as advocates, um, as public health practitioners and, uh, you know, practitioners from all fields is to understand how to bring this, you know, unity back, um, how to, and, and the key to this is empathy. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we need to use our ability to connect with each other to, um, you know, bring um, unity. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true in um, so many ways and uh, disciplines and areas, Sri. So thank you for um, reminding us of that. So um, there's a related question here, I think, about um, some social identity um, uh, concepts and. So um, a question from our audience relates to what you learned from your tuberculosis research about the structural and social barriers to preventing disease. And so, um, you know, uh, I observed um, as um, I think we're seeing now in some of the situations a a certain sense of mistrust from certain populations. And can you speak a little bit to how that mistrust might, um, you know, play a role in um, that, one of the social barriers? Sure, sure. Yeah, I can definitely speak to that. Um, and I, I can, I can go back to the uh, tuberculosis example as well, um, to try to because I actually um, did do, um, you know, f- further research into um, understanding um, tuberculosis, uh, multi drug resistant uh, tuberculosis, extensively drug resistant tuberculosis, and, um, you know, the slum population. So the um, largest population, um, slum population that Dharavi slum um, in India um, has has uh, a pretty significant you know a, amount of tuberculosis cases and um, the the tragic um, aspect of this 
is that these individuals are actually not counted um, as, as um, citizens as uh, in the numbers. Um, and, and so, you know, when, when they're not counted, there's no funding, you know, and, and so these individuals are forgotten um, in, in, in the country. And so, you know, there's so many um, structural barriers, not only in um, diagnosing the right type of tuberculosis, because in order to um, diagnose multidrug resistant TB, you need a specific type of test. And in these areas, there's no funding or there, there's just, um, you know, even the record keeping is not consistent. Um, it, I've, I've gone through some of the handwritten um, records and they just are, are not there. Um, so, you know, going from, from that to, um, I, I also um, did encounter, um, you know, tuberculosis um, in, in Baltimore as well. Um, and it, it took some persuasion to convince um, the patient that he needed to be there, you know, in isolation um, because this could spread in the community, right? So, so you know, the issue here is trying to um, address some of these barriers um, that surround um, diseases like tuberculosis, which are predominantly seen in um, the homeless population or vulnerable populations, you know. Um, and, and some that are, and, and of course, um, historically excluded um, groups. So, you know, coming back to, um, you, you said about social, social, social barriers and um, specifically around mistrust, Sri. Right. Social mistrust. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that, that is really important. Um, thinking back to, um, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, and um, think about why some of these uh, might have developed in minority communities. Um, in, in in the early 1900s, um, there was a study to see, you know, kind of see the uh, disease of syphilis. Um, but after the uh, the um, patients were enrolled into the study, what happened was um, their penicillin was discovered as a treatment. But once the treatment was discovered, it was actually never offered um, to the patients. Um, and this went on actually for 40 years. Um, and so this study is often cited and um, rightfully so um, as, as a really important source of, of a reason why mistrust developed. Um, and, you know, um, there's some scholars that would argue that um, along with that, there's um, the Henrietta Lacks, um, you know, example where uh, th there's um, where the um, cells um, that were studied um, were in fact taken without her permission. Um, and um, I've I've actually in in biology um, also, and and this is used um, in biology protocols. I've myself used it in lab as well. Um, so you know th these are examples um, of reasons why mistrust would persist. Um, but I, I think it's important also to note that um, the guidelines that have come from uh, major public health agencies oftentimes have been contradictory. 
um, World Health Organization um, have at times not agreed with what the Centers for Disease Control says and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of this disagreement in policy and, and, and these unknown variables that I've uh, talked about have also contributed um, to some, some of this mistrust. Um, so I, I think education at the end um, will be key. Um, and, and this is what my research from Mozambique um, you know, showed. Um, education was what at the end made the difference between uh, diphtheria uh, vaccine uptake and, and not. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to follow up a little bit on that um, tuberculosis connection, um, Sri, um, with another mm-hmm. question from the audience. And so um, we know that, that there are now drug resistant versions of, of TB, which you mentioned. And with the fast spread of the Delta variant of COVID, how does what we've seen with tuberculosis's evolution inform our approach to stopping the growth of newer, deadlier strains of COVID? Or, or are there other examples, you know, that you could draw on that that might relate? Yeah, that, that's a that's a very good question, Sue. Um, you know, the the idea of and then the principle of resistance, um, I, I think, is um, important um, to understand. Now, uh, but but before we you know could think about um, the principle of resistance, um, it's it's important to note that. Uh, tuberculosis, of course, is a, uh, you know, a bacteria. And we're thinking about uh, COVID-19, uh, coronavirus disease 2019, um, as a uh, virus. So um, naturally, how this uh, it develops uh, changes, and I, I can kind of explain to you the similarities and differences. So with a bacteria, what's happening is when you're um, when you are um, administered antibiotics, um, a lot of times if you don't take the whole course, there are some that may mutate and um, grow resistance to um, whatever antibiotic you're taking. And so penicillin, we see this often. Um, There's actually an enzyme um, which is contained within the bacteria, penicillinase, which will actually cleave the uh, penicillin uh, compound. Um, and so this is one mechanism of resistance. Now, let's think about viruses. What happened with the Delta virus and how did it develop? Um, so in the spike protein, um, the spike protein that um, actually uh, binds with the receptor within the human cell, that spike protein had a mutation. And so um, that develops because of the fact that um, this virus has the ability to it is spreading, still spreading, you know, um, vaccination is not at herd immunity levels. Um, and so, you know, it's still full vaccination levels are, you know, in the 50s, still percentages. So, you know, we're not at, at that level. So it's still spreading. And so as this spreads um, more and more, there's more and more opportunities for mutations, right? The more and more th- there is replication, the more and more and more DNA is being replicated and copied, the more mistakes that might happen. Mm-hmm. And the more mistakes, there is a ch- there's always that chance that that one mistake will be the one that will make it a little bit more lethal or you know more transmissible. And that's what happened with the Delta virus. And we're keeping an eye right now. None of the vi- none of the other uh, viruses are actually, you know, um, m- of major concern in 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 terms of not the vaccines not working right 
Mm-hmm. Um, but but um, we're, we're all keeping the scientific community is keeping a close close eye on that. Yeah, and Sari, I know that you are keeping a close eye on many things right now. So um, in in closing, I wonder if you might um, share a little bit of that. Um, with our our audience. And and also, I'm going to ask you, since we did not make it through all of our questions, if if you might be willing to to share some more afterwards so we can follow up with our audience and get more of their questions um, answered uh, in some other format. Um, We can work it out afterwards. But uh, we've had a lot of questions from the audience, and I wasn't able to get to them all. And I, I apologize to our audience members for that. But but we're going to do our best to get those questions answered with our um, distinguished guests tonight. So maybe, Sari, you'd like to just close with what do you keep in your eye on? What's what's out there for you? And um, and then we'll say goodnight to our audience. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it, uh, you know, I really um, thank the opportunity to be able to, um, you know, share, um, the experiences and just being able to be a part of, um, this dialogue. Um, and I, I want to, you know, close, um, with a sense of hope, you know, um, we have been through difficult times, um, in the past and, um, many unknowns, um, you know, in, in the 1980s, of course, um, with HIV. And so th- this is not the first time we've seen this. So in a way, I, I think it's comforting um, to know that this is kind of a, uh, the, the era, the pandemic era is kind of a norm. Um, so it, once you understand that, then, then you can prepare better. Um, so you know, what is in my uh, radar um, in, as far as my research is concerned, I, I will be um, of course presenting um, with the American Academy of Family Physicians, some um, information about vaccines and, you know, um, social factors that, that actually um, make a difference there. Um, so um, I, in, in, in general, um, you know, I want each and every one of you to um, take precautions, continue to take precautions, um, uh, monitor uh, CDC guidelines closely, and um, always look to um, sources that are trustworthy um, and reliable. Um, I, I hope you've enjoyed this. Thank you. Oh, well, Sri, um, I have definitely enjoyed it. And as with all of our guests, I really just appreciate talking to super smart people to share um, their their nuggets and insights and, and what a relevant topic this one is for all of us today. So thank you for that. And um, to our audience, thank you for joining us and um, look for some of the um, responses to come in another format uh, coming up soon. We'll, we'll do our best. Thanks again, Sari. Thank you, Sue. That brings us to the end of our event. We appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us today. And thank you very much for submitting your questions for Dr. Banerjee. As a reminder, this webinar will be archived and can be viewed on demand. The link to access that is going to be sent in a follow-up email. You can also register for past episodes of Beacons of Light by visiting the links in the resource list on the toolbar at the bottom of the screen. In that box, you'll also find uh, the ability to download a copy of the slides for tonight's presentation with links to some of Dr. Banerjee's research. 
Please feel free to share this content with a friend or a colleague. Thank you again to Dr. Banerjee and to Dr. Subak and to you, our audience, for joining us. Please have a safe and wonderful day.